This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June 19, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. This week, we've got a few things we're going to look at. We'll start out by looking at the fact that it has been recently announced that OIRA will no longer be reviewing IRS regulations before they are issued. So that's interesting. We'll talk a little bit about the fact that the IRS also this week issued one of their, you know, eventual, kind of they occur irregularly, but we get them, consolidated list of accounting method changes with a couple of changes in some specific methods, probably more to the point, uh, changed specifically in 1451, which is advanced payment recognition dates. We also have some rules here on proposed regulations issued on the transfer of certain energy credits and direct pay uh, for certain credits. And we'll talk about that, what came out in those. And then I want to walk through an example of what can go wrong if somebody doesn't do their homework and just, you know, takes whoever the highest bidder, shall we say, for purposes of claiming the employee retention tax credit, how badly could it go if somebody claims the credit who doesn't actually qualify for it, especially if their non-qualification is, shall we say, on the extreme end of the engagement. Well, we'll take a look. It's not quite the case, as some may think, that there's nothing to lose if you ask for the credit. So let's talk first about a memorandum of agreement from the Department of Treasury and the Office of Management and Budget Review of Treasury Regulations under Executive Order 12866. This was issued on June the 9th of 2023. Now, you may remember back in 2018, a similar memorandum of agreement was issued that started having OIRA, right, the Office of what is that, Information and Regulatory Affairs of the Office of Management and Budget, review each IRS regulation uh, when they were issued, right? So before they were issued, I should say, they would have to go to them and there would be a period where they would basically have certain comments, options, and reviews. And this was done, arguably, the, uh, the first push was that this made it more transparent what was going on with the regulations in that case. But the opposite side of that, some complained that this just slowed up the release of regulations and tax being somewhat unique, that we need regulations to actually be able to figure out how to apply a law that this was just unnecessarily slowing that down. Obviously, there were disagreements. Well, now we're back over on the side where we were before 2018. No longer will OIRA be doing the reviews anymore at this point. So previously, we kind of knew if a regulation project went to OIRA that it would be there for a while, but then we were getting ready to have the project released. Now, we're not going to have that kind of advance notice. Treasury will be able, once they've issued the final, once they've taken the hearings, put together their idea of the final regulations, that will now be issued at this point. So no longer are you going to have these things going to OIRA. Next, we're going to talk about Revenue Procedure 2023-24, issued on June the 15th. And this relates to the IRS's published list of automatic accounting method changes. Under federal law, whenever you change your accounting method for tax purposes, you have to have the permission of the IRS. Now, that permission, shall I say, the accounting method, is anything effectively 
that doesn't affect ultimately the amount we're going to include in income or ultimately the deduction we're going to get, but affects the timing. Let's take an extreme example. If somebody was, let's say, buying a building and expensing it all in one year, well, that's an improper method. While the total value of the building, let's say the building was a million dollar building, over the life of the building, we would be able to claim a million dollars in depreciation. But it's improper to claim that in one year. However, under federal law, once you've done your improper method for two years, then you're going to need the IRS to essentially give you permission to change that method. Now, when we get into this issue, by default, if you want to change your method, your timing for deduction or inclusion in income, you have to file a form 3115, pay a user fee, and wait for IRS approval. And in those cases where this applies, which actually is a minority of the cases where we file 3115s, but where they apply, you usually want to apply very early in the year you want to make the change because it can take a long time to get the actual ruling from the IRS about whether or not you're going to be allowed to use new method. And you're not allowed to use that new method if we have to file the advance, uh, essentially, permission 3115 until we obtain that permission. So we're trying to file it early and hopefully by the extended due date of the return in question, we will have our permission in hand. However, what we use far more often, why we probably, you, probably, what, I'll get it out of here, probably what you have used far more often is the automatic method changes under 3115 provided now in Revenue Procedure 2023-24. Under the automatic method changes, you simply attach a copy of the 3115 to the tax return in question. You send another copy to an address that the IRS changes every so often, but you always check the instructions. So you're going to send one to, you say, national office. Now it's, well, we send it somewhere. We'll just phrase it that way. And the address changes every so often. So we always go back and recheck it. But those two copies filed, then you're granted, deemed to have been granted permission, as long as you met all the requirements provided in the automatic method change. Now, Revenue Procedure 2023-24 essentially consolidates all of those method changes into a single ruling. What happens after this one comes out is if new issues arise that need to have method changes, either IRS decides they're going to have a new method change automatically allowed for this, or what happens more often, to be quite honest, is that the Congress passes a law that requires us to have a change in our method. And in that case, with that required change in method, we end up getting stuck with, uh, you know, having to get permission. And that's why they need to draft a new revenue procedure for automatic relief. Now, as I say, because those start to pile up, the IRS republishes this list every so often to get us back to a single source for at least, you know, until we issue the next interim notice, waiting the next time we consolidate, a place to find all of the changes, right? That would be in here. Now, they did extend the period to make changes under 451 B and C, those are accounting method rules and timing rules, really, uh, that was found in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, people have been complaining that these are more complicated and been messier to implement 
They're going to add a couple of years, so years beginning in 21, years beginning in 22, uh, are now covered by this ruling, as I recall at this point. So technically, our automatic method change is only for like those 22 returns on extension, but hey, we got something in there as automatic relief is in play if you have a change related to that. Next up, the IRS issued proposed regulations. And these proposed regulations have been issued. They're in Treasury Decision 9975, issued on June the 21st. And what it looks at is a cup, a special set of rules added in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And that particular bill added an option to take payments for certain for certain commercial energy credits could be, in essence, converted as to a payment by certain tax-exempt organizations. Now, this is what the IRS will refer to as direct pay in their regulations. And that's for a specific list, you know, basically all standard tax-exempt orgs and then some government or quasi-government agencies are also included in that list. Any other entity that uh, gets these or qualifies or, you know, basically has certain credits is able to, rather than getting it paid to them, that's not an option for them, but rather, or rather than having it offset their income tax, and they may not have any, they can turn around and transfer that credit to another party. That's what's allowed here. Now, the list of credits for these two is not identical. One major difference is that the, the tax-exempt orgs can use the, the commercial vehicle credit and transfer and basically get paid for that. That is not a transferable credit for purposes of the other taxable entities. So the IRS has now issued temporary and proposed regs to deal with these issues. So we have the temporary, we have the proposed. My guess is we're going to be living with the temporary for this year without much question. Now, one interesting aside, a couple of things about these regs. One interesting aside is the IRS makes it clear that taxpayers will be required to go online and register in either case. Register to get the payment, do take the direct pay option, or register in order to do the transfers. Now, the transfer one, it makes sense if you think about it. If you have, let's say that you have one of the qualifying credits and you want to transfer that to another taxpayer. You might have sold it to that taxpayer. You might have just, you know, it may just be a related party. You may just be transferring that to another company under common control that has some tax to pay while your company doesn't. In that case, the entity that is going to be transferring the credit has to go on and register. And it can register for a full transfer or a partial transfer of the credit. And the partial transfer allows, therefore, for us to take a credit and transfer it maybe to two, three, four, five different entities. So we don't have to just transfer it to one entity. The flip side of that is the parties that we're going to transfer it to will also go online register. And the point of this is to match up the party that is transferring the credit and have a direct matchup pre-registered for the party authorized to receive the credit. And basically, each party will identify the other one as being the one it's working with. The idea being this allows them to track these 
and hopefully the theory would be limit uh, the issues where multiple entities are claiming the same credit, where they're trying to take it off for other things. Now a couple of clarifications in here. One key one is they did clarify that for partnerships and S-corporation, the election to transfer the credits to third parties is made at the entity level, not at the individual partner or S-corp shareholder level. So if the partnership or S-corp decides not to transfer, then the credits will be transferred out to their equity holders and those equity holders will have to use them, right? They'll have to be able to use them. They won't be able to then on their own transfer that credit that they receive on a pass-through to another entity. However, if the partnership decides, let's say that it wants to transfer that credit to another party, sell it, whatever, then the partnership makes that election and the partners will not have the option to claim that credit on the return, at least assuming that they're not just assigned the whole credit, which would probably be a lot easier to do if that was the case, through certain special allocations or special options in the uh, partnership agreement. But nevertheless, you know, we'll leave that as a theoretical possibility. If you have clients who are interested in this, I strongly suggest, in addition to the regulations, the IRS posted a number of frequently asked questions on their website related to these credits. So if this is something of interest to your client, your client, let's say, is going to have excess credits. Your client is a tax exempt org that may be out there buying electric vehicles to use to, to help them serve their exempt purpose. Uh, and therefore they're going to have these credits, you probably want to go take a look and read it's a, you know that 108 pages, at least in the version that we have prior to publication, which the publication will be on the 26th actually, is apparently when we're going to get the publication. But prior to publication, we do have the pre-publication version, or 21st I should say, we do have the pre-publication version that is on the uh, Federal Register site and then on Wednesday, I assume the 21st, we will be able to read the Federal Register version that will appear shorter in pages, but obviously has the same text. So it's just smaller print uh, that will work. But you can take a look, read that, and that could help you set this up. As I said, because we have temporary regs in there, uh, we know what we're working with for this year, basically, will be the temporary regs. And the proposed regs is obviously they're going to... They're, the proposed temporary regs are the same, but the idea being that we could still ask for changes and at least for future years get something different under the proposed regs. So take a look at that. If you have a client who's area of interest, either to transfer their credits to another party or a client who is a tax exempt org and who obviously without a tax liability is gonna to wanna to go for the direct pay option, you wanna go ahead, be sure to read these regulations, take a look at them and see what's happening. Now, this week I was actually on the road uh, quite a bit. I was actually doing sessions early in the week and then I attended, because a member of the New Jersey Society of CPAs, I went ahead and went to Atlantic City to attend their convention at the end of the week and then had a lot of fun getting back to Phoenix on Friday. Uh, turns out I decided to uh, essentially have two choices coming back. I could have used Newark or I could have used Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia's closer, so I used it. Well, it turned out that my time of leaving the Philadelphia airport to fly back to Phoenix uh, turned out to be the exact time when major storms were moving through the area. Uh, 
Uh, and it was um, interesting because on Friday, uh, there and in the southeast at that time was where we were seeing some hefty storms. And the storms in the southeast were staying very much on the Gulf at the time I was looking. So it was very much like this was the only place uh, that had a major airport that was getting nailed by this and I was sitting in the airport. So in any event, I spent an extra five hours, shall we say, either on the tarmac at Philadelphia International Airport or inside the airport. Now, because of that, I started thinking up in addition to dealing with these updates, I thought maybe this would be a good time to discuss something I've heard a lot of people bring up. And that is the issue of, you know, and some employers reasonably are asking with all this confusion about employer retention tax credits, um, you know, the question becomes, could it, you know, what does it hurt if I file for it, right? Let's say, you know, I got these parties out here. They're all approaching me. I'm watching ads on TV. I'm hearing ads on radio. My email box is filling up. Phone calls are coming in. And all these organizations are telling me that I can qualify for a, the employee retention tax credit. Now, of course, as a somebody who maybe is not a tax expert, it's one of those things like, well, I don't know, you know, who, who should I pay attention to? You know, which one should I use? And, well, I, I really want to ask for as much as I can get because they obviously won't give me more than I ask for. Um, and this, you know, and I found at least this group here, let's say, that claims I qualify for the whole thing. Shouldn't I just go with them? What could it hurt? If I ask and it turns out the IRS comes back in and says you don't qualify, I mean, they wouldn't refund the money if I didn't qualify, right? Okay, maybe they would. Actually, yes, they would. That, that's not really a problem. But I mean, okay, I just have to pay it back. So it seems like it's it. You know, you don't get any of this if you don't ask. And I think we do need to recognize one fact. We're not really going to have case law on, this ish on these issues as to whether or not the IRS notices represent you know, a proper interpretation of the law. We're not going to have any real case on that most likely until we're past the date to file the claims for refund. So what we have today with the IRS notice is pretty, notices is pretty much all we have. We have the, we have the, you know, the law in the CARES Act or in the IRC for the third and fourth quarter of 2021 and in the CARES Act itself for 2020, and then CARES Act as revised, well, actually even as revised for 2020, and then a variations of it in 20 uh, that also ended up being amending the CARES Act, didn't go in the code itself. So, you know, why don't we just file for those, right? It seems to make sense. We should just file for them. You know, there's uncertainty. Why don't we go ahead and do that? Well, what I want to walk you through is an example claim and then a later IRS reversal of that claim. And the question is, what could it hurt? Well, let's talk about how badly it could hurt if everything breaks against you. Now, before we get into this, I do want to say, I'm not saying all claims are flaky. I'm not saying all consultants out there are just fly-by-night operators trying to, you know, put together as big of numbers as they can and then flee town before the IRS shows up. That's not the discussion here. Rather, the discussion is taxpayers need to understand how badly this could go and why you probably want to, you know, undergo some due diligence 
and not just blindly accept whatever, you know, the company you heard on TV who might have had you, we're going to talk about a really, really bad case in this case, who might have, you know, been on TV, had you, you know, answer a questionnaire that took you about two minutes, did nothing more, and then suddenly, you know, has this magic number that you, that they claim you all, you, that you can receive and just file these 941Xs and all the world's great. That could hurt you if that firm really isn't doing what it should be doing. So let's take our example here, right? So let's say that we had 20 employees all the time during the, uh, during basically the periods that the employee retention credit would apply. And that would have been during 2020, when if you recall the max credit was 50% of qualifying wages, no more than $10,000 per employee for the entire year of 2020. And then we also had those same 20 in 2021. Now in 2021, the credit was 70% of wages up to 10 grand, but this one was per quarter. So therefore the magic $26,000 number you see on a lot of those TV ads is the assumption that you have a taxpayer that could show that they qualify either due to a reduction in revenues or due to full or partial suspension for all of the quarters that you could get in there without being a recovery startup business. So that's where the magic numbers come. That we had 2020, you know, we got hit. March of 2020 hit. We went into suspension mode and we stayed there for all of 2020, or at least stayed in the mode that would let us get coverage for all 2020. And then in 21, we also qualified for the first three quarters because as you recall, the fourth quarter, you could only qualify if you recovery startup business. And if you were, then yeah, you're, you're not really going to get 26. You're not going to get big numbers anyway, because no more than 50,000 per quarter if you're applying as an RSB. So the big numbers aren't there. So in this case, we have 20 employees. We pay each of them more than $10,000 per quarter. And we're going to go on the assumption that, you know, the, you know, we, we, we give you big, 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 big refunds, the consulting organization. Uh, came in and we give you big, 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 big refunds, tells us that we qualified for all three quarters. Bingo, right? So using the math here, that means for the 20 employees, I should say, uh, you know, each of which had 10,000 of wages in that first quarter, uh, we would have $200,000 of 2020 wages. And then in 2021, uh, we would be able to do 10,000 now each quarter for each employee. That would give us 600,000 of those wages. Our total, therefore, wages eligible for the credit on the various quarterly 941s we need to file, uh, are, it's going to be $800,000. Now, how much of a credit would that give us? And, you know, let's assume we're filing it today. We're going to make a little bit of simplifying assumption in order to calculate the interest we'd be paid. Well, first thing is for 2020, we have a 50% credit. 50% of 100,000 is going to be, or 50% of 200,000 is going to be 100,000. 70% of 600,000 is going to be 420,000, right? So we're looking at the credit we're going to ask for is $520,000. Now, let's assume that, that we file these claims average of three years after the fact. And we're doing a very rough number here. Theoretically, we'd have different quarters, different numbers. We'd be doing it. Some would be more than, 
you know, we're going to say some are more, some are less, but nevertheless, we're going to say we get three years worth of interest, at least by the time the IRS pays each one. And that running at the current rate, we'll just assume it's 7%. That's not really correct going back to those years, but I'm just trying to explain the basics. And 7% is higher than you had most of that time period. So, and I am trying to compare, you know, what the costs are versus what the benefits are. So I'm going to kind of even understate the benefits somewhat here. But you would get, under my calculations, remember we have daily compounding of interest. So you would get 121500 of interest paid to you on that $520,000 refund. But remember, we do have to amend those tax returns and we do have to remove the credit. Right, so the credit numbers come out of those wage deductions from those years. And let's assume this was a pass-through entity. The uh, owner, owners are in the highest tax bracket. Uh, we're not going to worry about self-employment tax here, so I'll, I'll kind of ignore that. I'm not going to worry about, you know, it might make some changes for net income tax. There's a lot of things it could change. But let's just take the simple, regular tax rate, a flat, you know, they're at the top rate, 29.6, assuming it qualifies for 199 cap A. So that would be 153,920 of tax. We obviously have interest due on that of 35,964. So if I take a look at this, my net tax benefit is 451,616. Now, of course, the consultant's going to charge some money for doing this. And let's say that what the consultant charges in our case will be 20% of the credit received. So in that case, 20% of the credit received is going to be $104,000. So that means that overall, the taxpayer who comes in and does this would be looking at a potential benefit of $347,616. Because essentially, you know, we're looking at the total ERC credit, we're looking at the interest, we then offset that with the tax on the amended returns, the interest on the amended returns, and then we go ahead and we take our 20% contingent fee. And I'm using 20%, that is a rate often used by those who charge contingent fees. Um, you know, and not everybody does contingent fees, there are various other structures, but that's probably in the ballpark of what those who are advertising that your client's going to hear about, probably that'll be in the ballpark of what they're charging. Okay, so we get nearly $350,000 that we essentially get to pocket if we do this and they pay it. And as your client's probably going to be told by the consultant, and this much is obviously true, if you don't file a claim for refund, you're getting nothing. So why should I leave a potential $350,000 on the table? Well, unfortunately, it's not quite as risk-free as you might think. Your client's thinking, well, I just give the money back. Uh, you know, the consultant tells me they'll refund the fee if we don't cover this. They tell me they'll cover any penalties, etc. So there shouldn't be a problem, right? Not quite so quickly. Let's let, let's go with some of your assumptions there and what could go wrong. So let's assume now that again. Client did no due diligence. We don't have it. There is no real major league report. They simply told them you qualify based on these wages. Uh, they didn't like maybe look at PPP loan issues. They didn't really produce the information that's requested in Notice 2021-20. 
about the types of information if they claim to partial suspension, about the data they, they should have about the orders, explain how they do, and showing it's a more than nominal effect. Right? They just had an everybody qualifies theory that was working here, kind of, and they just vaguely went down that path. So we have really bad backup, and we don't have anything there, or we don't have backup for the revenue reduction. So we got all these problems. So what happens in that case? Okay, let's talk about how bad it could go. Obviously, we're going to pay back the 520. Right, $520,000 paid back. Now, as I said, your client's thinking, well, I pay that back. You know, I paid the IRS interest, but they paid me interest. Okay, and the interest I'm going to pay, we'll talk about what the issue here about why that interest is so much higher. But we're going to go down the path of where we're going there. You know, they'll do that, and, you know, they're telling me they're going to cover the penalty. They're telling me they're going to go ahead and refund their fee. So I'm not in any trouble, right? I'm in great shape. I'm back to zero. As I said, it can't hurt. Not so fast. Let's talk about a very, very possible thing, especially if you've gone with a consultant who, shall we say, is overly aggressive, right? Overly aggressive meaning there's no basis for the claim. They just crank them out. There is, you know, there is at least some temptation to just crank out claims as fast as you can if you're being paid a percent of the refund, right? The more claims you get out, the more numbers are claimed, the bigger you put in your pocket. So let's assume somebody fell, let somebody fell prey to that temptation. And I guarantee you, when you're talking about free money, somebody is going to fall prey to that type of temptation and go around and do this up. Not everybody, but some people. And if your client's just randomly accepting who's ever there, well, there's a chance they're getting the one of the somebodies that they shouldn't be getting. Okay, so here's the problem. Now, if the under section 6532B, if the refund claim is either contains fraudulent information or misrepresents material facts, then the statute of limitation for recovering that 520000 is not two years from the day's file. Generally, it'd be three years from the date the original 941 was due, and that's always considered April 15th of the year following the year in which the 941 applied to, or two years from the date the refund claim was filed. And generally, at this point, we're going to be sitting on two years, right? If they're filing their claims right now, they're making their decisions right now about whether to file the claim or they did so recently, we're probably going to be looking at the two years is going to go beyond the three because we are way past one year out from April 15th of you know 2022 or April 15th of 2021. Those would be the two dates that would be the three-year statute routine. So we're, we're way, way more than a year out from that. That would put us on the two-year statutes. However, and remember, the courts, and we can go back to cases like citywide transit, and you're going to discover that generally, if we talk about if a return has a fraudulent information on it, on a civil type penalty, or, you know, in this case, it has a misreputation of material fact, it doesn't matter who had the fraudulent intent. The return is fraudulent regardless of whether it was the promoter who had the fraudulent intent 
or it was the taxpayer that had that intent. Right? If you go back, in fact, Citywide Transit was a really bad fax case where the taxpayer was using a payroll service, and it's a 941 case too, which is what exactly these are going to be for payroll taxes. Um, you know, they, they were actually, you know, they were a payroll service that was taking the money to pay the payroll taxes from their customers, but not actually paying it. And then they filed fraudulent 941s claiming these big advanced earned income credit payments that we used to have employers make, claiming that all of their stuff got wiped out by those credits. Well, the problem was, of course, that there was no such advanced earned income credit and things fell apart and things really fell apart for these guys when the advanced earned income credit went away so they ran out of ways to paper over the fact that they were keeping the money um you know that they hoped it would avoid notice and again it was a little difficult to figure out how it would avoid notice because the w-2s would either make no sense or not agree with the 941s but if you're going to cheat like this you're going to embezzle you're probably got your tickets already set for a country that doesn't have a extradition treaty with the U.S. ready to flee at the least provocation. So the problem was citywide transit, you know, the IRS going back saying, well, you got to pay for all of these things because it was a fraudulent return. We're not going to assess additional tax on those 941s. And they're saying, well, you can't do that because, you know, I mean, you know, the statute's over. It's been more than three years. And no, the courts agreed, as did the IRS. The IRS argued, and certainly the Court of Appeals agreed, that no, it was a fraudulent return. And the fact it wasn't your fraud. You, in fact, you were being defrauded just as much as the IRS was. But that wasn't the problem. You hired these guys to your return. They turned out to be fraudsters. Well, you have responsibility for that. So that could get us a five-year statute. And that means that it's going to be very, very possible that that interest will run for five years. That gets us to 217,000 $217, dollars of interest. As well, there is a 20% penalty for an erroneous claim, right? In essence, the, these erroneous refund claims will get us a 20% accuracy-related penalty. So that's $104,000 on that background for it, right? And, okay, and then let's consider the things that were supposed to be to fix that. Well, what about the consultant who was going to refund the fee and pay our penalties? And, I don't know, maybe even help us pay the interest. Well, the problem is, if they were being super aggressive for you, employer, they were probably being super aggressive for a lot of their clients. And if the IRS is now aware these guys were filing claims that have no basis under the law, right, they weren't really doing any work, they were just, you know, flat, you know, throwing these things out as fast as they can, um, the IRS will start pulling more and more of their clients. No need to do a lot of extra work. When you know these guys, you're going to be able to show these people don't qualify. It'll take about, you know, what, two, three hours of your exam time and you'll have an assessment ready to go. So IRS is going to start banging hard on this. Well, even if, let's say, it was innocent, these guys were just incompetent, the odds are they're not going to have anywhere near the resources to be able to pay off everybody, send back all those fees, pay all those penalties, do all that stuff. So 
at least there's a more than reasonable chance that your client could get stuck in that position. So you may very well find that the consultant now is insolvent. Nobody's refunding the fees. The fees are gone. They're lost. Also, here's the other problem. If you get on that five-year statute, you still only have a two-year statute effectively to try to get back the taxes you paid with your amended income tax returns that you filed to report the decrease in wage deductions. There's no equivalent that says, ah, got to be fair, let you get that money back. That's not how this works. Now, that one is a problem because, as I said, you have a statute out of line, out of kilter, right? The statutes are out of kilter, so the wage deduction is running on a, the refund, potential refund from, you know, adding, putting those wages back in is on a wildly different statute date, most likely two years from the date that you filed the return to pay the money in, as opposed to five years from the date that the 941Xs were paid. And yeah, it's very easy to get whipsawed. If that happens, we would have $841,890 to pay five years down the line in a single year, right? Which, by the way, you'll note is well in excess of the credit that we got. And our net cash outflow, and by that I mean, let's go back, because we had that money before, so we net that against it. Some of this is just sending back money we got, but we're still nearly $495,000 out of pocket, which is an expensive problem to have, right? So $494,274. That's assuming the five-year statute. Now, as I said, this is worst case. Your client may not have this. Your client may be able to mount a defense. Maybe you can show that some year, some quarters they qualified right? Maybe their, maybe their consultant just made a mistake on something. They didn't screw up a whole bunch of these, so they actually are able to refund the excess fee they got. They're actually able to help on any penalty issues, maybe pay for the exam work. You know, we, we can hope for all of that. So maybe it wouldn't be quite as bad, but still there's a high risk here. You know, at best, you're going to, your problem's going to be probably paying back the money and Here's where you, if you weren't involved in the actual filing, but you're involved in the income tax side, there's a real question of whether you should be filing if you're afraid your client's in this position and you work with income taxes, should you be advising them to file protective claims for refund of those, uh, those potential wages? And the issue there, which I think is going to cause us a problem, is I'm sure the client's going to think, Wait, if, if we file a refund claim saying, hey, you know, you know, if, if you guys deny the ERC claims we had, which, by the way, you know, you might, you know, th that would be it. Aren't we kind of admitting that, that we're not so sure those refund claims are right? And is that a good thing to do to call attention to yourself? Well, you know, client, it's your choice. Amend the return to keep the statute open or... Uh, you know, or accept the fact the statute's closed. And I'm not even talking about the potential issue for the CPA firm, because here, given this exposure to your client, and given that if you're the CPA firm, you're the one still around, and the consultant has gone belly up, you may find the client looking to recover some money from somebody. 
and they may wonder why you went along with this. I realize right now they're telling you you don't know what you're doing because that's what the consultant told them. You don't know anything about this credit and they don't want you spending any time on it, right? All that stuff. But they can come back later, you know, they'll go the opposite way. Certainly some uh, arrows and emissions carriers have indicated they have a very real concern about, you know, that the client's going to go after whoever is still around. And that, that's kind of how this would work. So bottom line, that's kind of how we're going to get, that's where the concerns arise. So at the very least, you should be able to discuss with your clients who may be considering doing this. You know, first thing is the best thing you can do is help them understand if they truly qualify. Secondly, they should pay you to help them understand if they qualify because as I can point out from the old neonatology decision, the tax court is not going to allow them, or nor is almost is any court, as I'm aware, going to allow them to claim reasonable reliance on the advice of an expert, this consultant, if the expert is being compensated under a contingent fee arrangement. Because the theory the courts will have is, you have somebody here who only gets paid if they find you qualify for the benefit, and even worse, they get paid more the bigger the claim they put forward, right? So if they get a bigger, bigger, they have a, you sh anybody should be able to see the inherent bias they have of saying you qualify and getting that number inflated, that there's a benefit to them, assuming they don't get caught, right? Assuming the IRS doesn't examine the claim. So saying, yeah, you know, you're playing audit lottery. You know, that's a huge temptation for them to play audit lottery and a reasonable person. You don't need to know anything about tax to recognize the, the problem with the incentive arrangement in that scenario. So they've said, nope, in that case, it's not you can't use that person, but that person cannot be your source of, you know, that, that you did your due diligence to make sure you paid the right amount of tax because you know you have a source that has an inherent bias that reasonable people might assume could influence them against giving what might be the proper answer or at least you know blind them to the proper answer because you know that they're not going to get their their fee unless they say you qualify so that'd be the background that's kind of the issue right so as i say clearly this is not a risk-free thing to do right again if you use an overly aggressive consultant that begins losing case against the irs it's unlikely any of those promises are going to do you any good, right? This is a little different than a, let's say, contingent fee on a, let's say, a personal injury lawsuit. Because some might say, well, you know, we do those. What's the difference? Well, one problem is a personal injury lawsuit contingent claim generally will not be paid until such time as the actual damages are paid. So if the defense defendant is going to appeal the case, we're going to be holding the payment till the appeals are done until all appeals are exhausted or they simply don't file anymore, right? They lose their right to file an appeal. So the contingent fee comes out at a point where we now have established for sure you're getting the money. In this case, the contingent fee is being paid out much, much earlier in the process, right? Way earlier in the process, we're paying out the contingent fee and that's what makes it a bit riskier than a standard contingent fee arrangement. 
you know, you need, your clients must show they considered more than just, this guy told me I'd get a bunch of money. If that appears to be the entirety of a employer's due diligence in this area, they're going to get absolutely hammered. And if the consultant essentially isn't around, if the consultant's doing a really bad job, there's a good chance there, is, there aren't going to be funds there to pay you to pay off your claim, uh, you know, you're out of luck. And this type of huge amount of potential tax due, right, nearly having to write a check in this case, as you remember in our example, we would need to have written a check in this case for $494,274, right, or that's net, an actual check in the year, we're going to write it here years from now, of $841,890, there's a decent chance with this employer getting this much of payroll over two years that that's going to put them under. They're going to be unable to pay that number and stay in business, presenting some real major problems. And I think that's the big thing to consider. So as we say, it's not a zero risk operations. Your clients have to understand that. So with that, this has been the Current Flow Tax Developments for the week of June the 19th, 2023. Current Flow Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. I also follow the Connect sites for the state societies I'm a member of. So I'm looking at that for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and I look in on Idaho's post. They don't use Connect, but they have a but they have a similar discussion board. So we look there. So post there if you're a member of those sites, those societies. And if I see a question, I'll try to answer it. Otherwise, join us back here next week when we'll talk about whatever new has been going on in the area of current federal tax developments. <music>